0: The CNBC app. Global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected. Stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to this important Friday edition of Scorebox with those big US numbers still to come. We are live, of course, from the like Como for the Ambrosetti Forum here in Chernobyl, and in London, of course, Karen Cho and Juliana Tattlebaum. And these are your headlines. So Italy unveiling a multi-billion euro emergency plan to tackle inflation as the 10-year yield breaches 4% for the first time since June. But the Ambrosetti CEO, Valerio De Moli, tells CNBC Italy is not on the cusp of another debt crisis.
1: No chance for that. The spread remained exactly the same already. All the polls are stating that the centre-right will win. I mean, we just uh, look at the facts.
2: Vidal the snaps a four-day losing streak as attention turns to the August employment report for clues on how the Federal Reserve will act at its September policy meeting. Russia ratchets up the rhetoric on the oil price caps vowing to stop selling crude to countries
3: that support restrictions as oil prices gain in early trade and starbucks names former pepsico executive laxman Narasimhan as its next ceo and tasks him with implementing the reinvention of the coffee chain imposed by howard schultz
2: It's all about inflation fighting credentials from central banks to governments and the latest is that Italy's government is preparing a package of measures worth at least 10 billion euros in a bid to curb the spike in energy costs. The cabinet set to approve the measures next week with the move coming as inflation in Italy hits a 37 year high of 8.4% with one of the country's main business lobbies warning of an economic earthquake. Italians will head to the ballot box in just over three weeks time with a conservative block headed by Georgia Maloney's Brothers of Italy currently leading opinion polls. A quick look at those Italian yields that have been creeping high. You can see we're still shy of that 4% mark on the 10-year BTP where we are trading, but uh, certainly edging towards that 4% handle. As you can see, Steve is on those picturesque shores of Lake Como in Chernobyl again. Steve, this package, inflation-fighting package, nicely timed ahead of the the vote that is coming up uh, towards later this month. But is it going to be enough to, to make any difference when it comes to fighting the populace?
0: That's a very good question, Karen. And, and I don't have the answer for that. And, and, and I and, and the team, we've all seen a lot of Italian elections over the years. I've been in Italy for, for several of them as well. Uh, and I think this one is, is is absolutely fascinating, not only for what is happening on the right wing of politics here in Italy, but also what's going on on the left and, and possibly the, the centre-left disarray at the moment, which is something we can talk about quite a lot as well. Just to give you a little bit of a backdrop before I get into the weeds of Italian politics here as well, this this forum is a very, very important think tank as well, and I, I don't say that to promote it because CNBC has a relationship. I say it because I get to listen to some of the most extraordinary people uh, on the planet, and, and they they talk a lot off the record and or Chatham House as well. So I can't express a lot of the individual views. But if I say to you, I've already had conversations with the former director of the CIA, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who could or could not potentially be running uh, in the primaries uh, for the next president at some stage for the Republican side, and I've already had extensive conversations with Khalid al-Faleh, who is, as we know, uh, uh, famous for his efforts in creating OPEC Plus when he was Minister of Energy for the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, but is now the Minister of Investment. I had extensive conversation with them, all Chatham house, so I'm not going to go into too much of the detail, Uh, and fascinating getting their world view, uh, and really taking some extraordinary questions from the panels I was in as well, and moderating as well, so just just to give you an idea of what we're doing here, we're having some extraordinary conversations, world conversations with people, from people from all over the political spectrum, and from all over the world as well, that is the value uh, of coming to the events such as this. Then you come back to Europe, and you come back to Italy as well. And, and basically what Amber City does, it has a day where it talks about world issues, then European issues, and then very much specifically Italian issues over the next couple of days. And we're gonna be speaking to literally dozens of guests over the next couple of days about this from across the spectrum. So very important people. But as you're absolutely right, Italy is once again, has propelled itself, perhaps shot itself in the foot once again, by putting itself right at the center of concerns about political fragmentation across Europe as well. I had a great quote from a CEO, a very big CEO, came up to me, a local CEO, and he said to me, yeah, I said, how do you feel about things? He goes, well, if it was football, we've just taken Ronaldo off the pitch uh, and we've substituted him. Uh, and goodness knows what striker we're going to put on in his place and I thought that was very interesting what he was alluding to is the fact that the Mario Draghi government the national unity government actually seemed to be making progress finally you had a government that had put itself back at the center of European decision making finally you had a Europe which had Italy with their leader actually who was not only taking orders perhaps from northern Europe but actually passing back uh his wisdom and that and saying no we need to do it like this as well and creating some form of unity Across the political spectrum here in Italy as well. Now we are back to full fragmentation. And if I just remind our viewers who are the leaders and what the big parties are, just you would have heard of literally all of these leaders, and any single one of them could be the kingmaker or potentially the king going forward. You've got Calenda from Azione, perhaps the one you haven't heard of the most out of all these big leaders as well. Uh, he was a uh, development minister I spoke to many years ago, actually, uh, in France. You've got uh, Enrico Letta, the leader of the uh, Democratic Party, which is in potentially a degree uh, of disarray, not managing to get alliances together with either Calenda or or indeed with Conti from Five Star, won't work with Conti from Five Star because they were one of the the parties that brought down the Draghi government as well. You've got Meloni, who's come from almost nowhere as well, uh, to lead the Fratelli d'Italia, the brothers of Italy, the FDI, who could well become the first female prime minister here. You've got Berlusconi, uh, almost legendary figure in Italian politics as well, who is part of this right-wing alliance with his Forza Italia as well. Uh, And then to add to that, Renzi on Italia Viva as well. You've got um, Di Matteo uh, from the Civic Commitment Party and, of course, a man who has, well, made shudders across the mainstream political establishment and, and business for the last few years. And that's Salvini as well with Leger as well. What role will he play in any government potentially going forward? Because one thing that I can say about the situation at the moment is the right wing of politics here seems to have got its act together at the moment in terms of forming an alliance as well. And that alliance could carry them uh, to uh, a victory, all short of a, a, the kind of majority that could mean constitutional change. They're not going to get to those kind of levels according to the polls, but they could form uh, a cohesive majority in Parliament and that could potentially mean problems ahead for the relationship with Brussels if some of their previous statements uh, hold to be true. So I spoke to uh, Valerio de Moli. Now, he's the man who puts together Ambrassetti European House as well. And I said, Said, look, how concerned are you that if the right-wing coalition were to get into government, that it's going to create all kinds of problems for Italy and Europe as well? Let's listen to his answer.
1: The current leaders of the centre-right, they have not that great reputation uh, in, across Europe in the financial markets. They have no experience there. But there are other players around them and in Italy that can play a, a very good role in that scheme, it will be crucial to identify who is going to be the treasury minister of the country. Him or she will endorse the country and will give the credibility and will represent the country outside. We have great talents, uh, you know, across all over Europe.
0: So you think? And we've talked about Salvini before. We haven't talked much about Maloney, but you think? that when one of these Enfants Terribles, these these populists come in, they
1: can be shackled? They can be made more conformist? I think so. It happened exactly the same way with the Five Star Movement when they went to the government already. If you don't forget, they were governing the country already a few years ago. Uh, And no shock happened, no collapse of the financial markets, no uh, attack to the Italian bonds, no nothing. The country moved on, maybe not at the uh, deserved speed, I recognize and accept that, but the country moved on. And so I do expect, you know, the same and exactly the the key person was shared with the President of the Republic for the Treasury Minister. Let's not forget that with within the Italian uh, statute, within the Italian uh, constitution the rules are that the President of the Republic needs to endorse and approve every single minister of the government and needs to delegate the Prime Minister to form the government that needs to be approved within the parliament. So the uh, end word will be in the head of the President of the Republic and I'm very much confident and I trust him a lot. He's a fantastic person. His reputation is at the same level as Draghi in the world and he did the right thing already in the past so-called populist governments of the country that were populist with the titles but not in the facts. I mean, everybody noticed that.
0: I think, and I just want to digest a little bit there, and you'll listen to my first question there, and my, my, the first answer, and I think it's fascinating. Uh, and it reminds me of, funny enough, the man I met actually uh, about 50 yards away from here, before he became Prime Minister of Greece, and that was Alex uh of Syriza, which promised to pretty much tear up uh, the relationship between Greece and Europe. And what happened? Well, he became pretty mainstream, didn't he, really? And again, he was referring in the answer there from Valerio de Moli to uh, how Five Star pretty much came on board and became fairly mainstream compared to where they promised to be with the voters before they became elected as well. And I think that's a really important point that you get these populists and they happen on a regular basis in Italy and they happen on a regular basis elsewhere in Europe and globally as well. And then when they come into government, they become a little bit more mainstream because they realize the constraints placed upon them. The constraints actually, if you want the finances uh, from external bodies, this is what you've got to do to toe the line as well. So I thought actually it was very interesting and debatable um, the, the point that Valeria De Moli was making there about even if you see a right-wing alliance with Fratelli d'Italia, with Lega, with Forza Italia forming some form of discontent compared to where the current government is with Europe. Actually, they will potentially come on board because they want those funds, because they want the disbursement of that 200 billion euros uh, from Europe uh, towards the recovery plan. And I think that's absolutely fascinating as well. The other issue we talked about, of course, is the fact that Italian debt uh, is creeping up in terms of its yield, the, un- the underlying going down. Uh, and yes, I know that the relationship between BUNs and BTPs is where a lot of people are focused. And I spent a lot of time looking at this and talking about this with various of our guests on CNBC, as Karen and I have, and I'm sure Giuliana, you have as well on the show. It's fairly stable at between 2.3 and 2.5 uh, percent, 230 and 250 basis points between BUNs and BTPs. But the absolute level of yield is creeping up. And the problem is when you've got a, a 2.7 trillion euro debt load, over 150% debt's GDP, that is getting a few people nervous in the market. And we know that some of the hedge funds are beginning to build up some shorts on the BTPs. And I think we're looking at that yield uh, on the screen as we speak as well. So, again, I ask the most obvious question, and the question I don't like asking because I adore Italy, but it's the truth. Are we on the cusp of another Italian debt crisis? Uh, Mr. De Moli doesn't think so
1: no chance for that. The spread remained exactly the same already uh, given the fact that all the polls are stating that the center-right will win. I mean, we just uh, look at the facts. Uh, It may not happen, I don't know, I have no uh, crystal ball to make any forecast for the future, Uh, but that is the expectations of the markets, of the investors, of everyone. The polls are quite uh, this uh, clear on that topic and the spread l- two months ago was 220 now is 200 220 is exactly the same
0: so that was valero de moli talking to me there but i, I do want to hasten to add on i know that you've got a question coming as well the, the, this conference is fascinating and as i say the the, 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 the the words that were coming out of the mouth of the likes of Mike Pompeo and al D'Alfali I thought was fascinating. And there's a lot going on globally. And as one of them said, a confluence of crises. And that's no understatement, is it, as well? When you look at what's going on on a global basis, the challenges for our viewers to try and negotiate that from an investment point of view as well, it is absolutely torturous at the moment. And I know that we've got a war with some of our guests to come over the next couple of days on it as well, but really fascinating array of guests uh, over the next 48 hours. Karen, back to you. Uh, Steve, I'm
2: just going to pick up on that point Around crisis mode because the clear difference is it feels if we talk about a caretaker government there in Italy, Mario Draghi still coming up with policy action to try and fight fires versus here in the UK where we waited out. For a new leader of the tory party but uh, can i also just pick up on where we go from here on the energy story because that is front and center when it comes to all of these economies and already the uh, head of the employers association there in italy is calling for some sort of cap on the energy price whether at a domestic level or a european level we know the europeans are talking about this but i wonder with this air of cooperation that could be impacted by an italian election whether there could be any agreement for a european wide level uh, cap on the energy price
0: caps on energy prices sound great when they come from politicians mouths whether it's in the united states whether it's in europe whether it's specifically in the uk or, or in italy as well it sounds great as well but there, there is a problem here isn't there so Uh, As I discussed when I was in the Bavarian Alps at the G7 as well, my bemusement, to be honest, at this great protestation that the global consuming nations were going to have a cap on the price they paid the producers for energy. And I think that was fascinating because the producers of energy turn around, I'm sure, and say, uh, that's not how it works in the market of energy as well. Uh, There is a price set by the market or set by supply and demand, and you pay that price. So To hear consuming nations talking about price caps, I don't know how that works, and I don't know many people in the energy world who do know how that works. So. Go back to your very specific question, and it's a good question, Karen, as well, because how do you get a cap on prices if the suppliers of the aforementioned energy don't want to play ball, which they're not going to play ball. That's a fact. Whether it's gas, whether it's renewables, whether it's uh, oil, there isn't going to be a cap on that unless it's state owned assets, which is then feeding its own consumers. So that means there has to be a third party between the market, between the consumers uh, and indeed the suppliers of that aforementioned energy. And that third party has to be government. So how can the governments which have dare I say it, very tricky government finances across the border amidst this uh, uh, current crisis, and they're trying to invest in digitalisation, and they're trying to uh, invest in energy security, and in the transition, and coming out of COVID, on infrastructure, where do they find the money to put a cap on the price paid by consumers and businesses in order to lessen the blow from the inflation impact, lessen the blow from the cost of living crisis? And I don't know where that money comes from especially when you look at the finances of a country such as Italy, such as the United Kingdom, which has spent vast amounts of money on COVID. And that kind of money, which politicians are promising, and if they do find the money, Does that mean it doesn't go to other much-needed courses, uh, events and areas of the economy, such as infrastructure, such as education, such as improving productivity, such as digitisation? I don't know where that money comes from without there being a knock-on effect elsewhere as well. And that is the question that we must continue to ask all these politicians.
3: Steve, great point and um, excellent um, first I- insight into what we're going to hear from you today. Look forward to getting out to you again shortly. On that note, Steve will have a plethora of guests throughout the morning where he'll speak to the likes of NL's Francesco Sturace, former Spanish Foreign Affairs Minister Arancha Gonzalez, Alliance Economic Advisor Mohamed El Arian, and Nobel Laureate Joseph Stiglitz. That is just to name a few. Coming up on this show, we'll get the latest U.S. payrolls figures for August later today. How will it sway the Fed, if at all? We'll discuss that next. Welcome back to the program. Let's get a check on markets. What a day on Wall Street. We saw a major rebound uh, get underway in the middle of the session and ultimately the Dow Jones and the S&P 500 after starting the day in the red broke a four-day losing streak. It's a different picture for the Nasdaq which uh, still ended the session lower, only marginally so, down about a quarter of a percent. Within the S&P 500 we saw eight out of the 11 sectors end in positive territory. Healthcare was the best performing sector of the bunch up about 1.6 percent. Energy Um, In contrast, was the laggard ending the day down about 2.3%. We did get some strong data on the labor market. Initial jobless claims came in at 232,000 for the lowest level since the end of June. Now, all eyes turn to today's August non-farm payrolls report. We also saw some action in Treasuries yesterday. The 2-year Treasury yield, which we've all been watching very closely over the last weeks, hit once again its highest level since 2007. Yesterday, this morning we're trading right around that 3.5% mark. The 10-year note trading with a yield of about 3 and a quarter percent. The dollar was incredibly strong yesterday. The dollar index surging about nine tenths of a percent in a single day, breaking a two day losing streak. So incredibly strong performance in the greenback. This morning, we are seeing a little bit of a reversal of that, but nothing in comparison to the gains we saw yesterday. So um, the dollar trading weaker versus sterling. We're hovering around the 115 mark. Um, we've, of course, got the U.K., uh, Prime Minister election coming to a close this weekend. So uh, sterling in focus there. Liz Truss seen as the clear frontrunner in the race between her and Rishi Sunak. Euro trading firmly versus the dollar as well. We're up about a third of a percent. But as you can see, we are below parity this morning. Turning to energy markets, we saw Brent and WTI fall back more than 3% apiece yesterday. This morning, we're gaining some of that ground back. Brent trading about 2% higher to $94 a barrel. WTI, meanwhile, trading around $88 a barrel. Karen.
2: And let's take a look at the picture ahead today on Wall Street as we gear up for the trade. You can see it is a very modest range as we're looking at at this point. It uh, indicates a lot of caution coming up to the non-farm payrolls report today, Jobs Friday. So I think the market is waiting it out for this key data point. And the August non-farm payroll figures are expected to show a slowdown in U.S. jobs numbers. But uh, nonetheless, it's still set to show continued broad-based hiring across several sectors. The total number of new jobs is forecast to come in at just under 320,000. That's substantially lower than July's red-hot figure of over half a million. The unemployment and average hourly rates are expected to remain more or less flat on the month. So as you can see, we're setting up for a smaller number, but still a fairly big number, that said. And 20 straight months of job growth is what effectively we should see. But I think there are problems here. We've got this shadow looming still from Jackson Hole, that commentary about just how hawkish the uh, team will be at the Fed if we get a red-hot data print, and that's on the Labour side on the inflation side, even though inflation is cooling, I think we uh, still have this fear that we're getting this push through from higher wages and that is causing a further trigger for inflation. And the issue here is that this series of data has a low response. So typically over the past five years, there's been an average upward revision between the first and third estimates of about 120,000. So if you've got a market trying to react and interpret the data as it's crossing today, it might be the wrong data. Hmm. That they're seeing at this point, and that's quite a uh, big for markets. As you can see, you mentioned the dollar trades that have gone on, the the yield that has moved. It's going to be an interesting one to see how the market will try and judge this figure.
3: Arguably, this um, this jobs report is more important than uh, jobs reports in the last couple of years, given that the Fed has now done away with forward guidance and said the key to determining where we go from here is going to be the data. And I'm um, reading through some of the analyst's commentary. Bank of America says that the jobs report, t- today's employment report, is likely to be more important than that CPI inflation report, which is coming out and more important when it comes to deter- determining whether the Fed goes for a 75 basis point or 50 basis point hike at their September meeting. I think on the flip side of your point about whether it's if it is hot, it makes for a more aggressive Fed, If it is softer than expected, does it necessarily change the Fed's course of action? Does it mean that the Fed um, is going to be less inclined to act aggressively? I think that is a bigger question um, because the Fed clearly has been very keen to take a hard stance on inflation and a soft report, one soft report. I don't know if that's going to be enough to to move the needle for them. Yeah.
2: I was reading reading an interesting comment and a shout out to Brian Bethune, who is an economics professor at uh, Boston College who is was arguing that more people coming to the workforce is not inflationary. In fact, it's uh, having the opposite impact because businesses can fulfill more services. Yeah. So it does take some of the heat out of uh, potentially some of the pricing action that you've seen, which is fascinating, I think, because we've all been on the page that the, the hotter this labor market gets, the more wages are going to go up, the more people are going to spend when they go out and go to shops or on other services. But I think that was a fascinating pushback that if you do get services uh, running at adequate levels to meet high demand, then perhaps you don't get the same levels of inflation.
3: That is a fascinating point, given that the constraints we're facing now are so heavily on the supply side. So if these businesses businesses are able to actually pump out more supply through these um, increased uh, workers or hiring more workers. That is a fascinating point.
1: Thank you
0: for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com.
2: Or join us again on this show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.